and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And once again, you can always follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY. That's my handle, at JakeJakeNY. And you can find me on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Um, Want to talk tonight, and uh, if, if you're listening at night, that's uh, the perfect time to say it. But if you want to talk this week about the situation we have going on in Israel and something that really helps tie in the situations in both Israel and the United States as far as our political attitudes go. And I'm going to include some recommendations for new books that I hope um, you'll you'll check out. And again, I'll, I'll put them up on my Twitter feed at JakeJakeNY in case you're unable to get a pen and, and or, or write it on, onto your phone. And just to, to show how there are some connections going on, uh, I'll start with a new piece of news, and that is we've had a weekend's worth of memorial ceremonies, annual memorial ceremonies for the late Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was assassinated, as we all know, by Yigal Amir, who remains in jail for that crime. And the memorial services for him in the early years were highly politicized. We've gone through a couple of decades, for the most part, where they've been less politicized. And then unfortunately, this year, we've had a weekend's worth of highly politicized stuff coming out of the memorial services. And it's sad to see that. It's not surprising, but it's sad to see it. Um, tragedies and atrocities and things like that that happen in nations, sadly, this is something that connects both totalitarian and democratic countries. They get politicized. Uh, it's just too much for political aspirants, for people who want political power, for people who want to maintain it or to get it. It's too much to ask these people, sadly, to refrain from politicizing just about everything. And we're dealing with that in both the United States and in Israel, the, politi the politicization of everything from presidents and, and heads of state who show up at sporting events and people start to count how many boos and cheers there are, as opposed to just enjoying the event. And we've also reached that point with other aspects of entertainment. I mean, the list goes on. Everything is politicized. And for an assassination of a prime minister not to get politicized more often is just, it's lucky that it hasn't happened even more often in Israel. It's been 24 years now since Rabin was assassinated. But for it to spike now during this period of political limbo in Israel, the political logjam, we do seem like we're headed for a third election this year in Israel where they just haven't been able to work out the coalition numbers, despite the fact that the country is very clearly to the right of center in its voting. In every single one of these elections that they've had, not just the two they've had this year, but pretty much every election they've had since 2009 and, and, and going on before that truly as well, it's clear that the, that the center left and certainly the left in Israel has been out of favor for the clear majority of Israelis now for a very long time, a very long time, at least since the second intifada really broke out in the year 2000, at least since then, but maybe even before that as well. And the problem is, is that within that center right or mostly right wing group of parties has been a problem with forming a coalition. And this is a problem that you have in parliamentary democracies. It's a problem that you have, uh, I hate to sound stereotypical here or sound or, or sound in a stereotypical alarm bell or dog whistle or whatever you want to call it, but uh, 
Jewish organizations and Jewish leaders tend to disagree a little bit more than a lot of others, although I'm sure a lot of ethnic groups have the same issue. Um, the disagreements seem to be very personal within the right side, you know, within that right side of the aisle in Israel, despite the fact that it's it's a clear majority. I mean, it's you have 120 seats in parliament, about, you know, more than 60, clearly more than 60, probably more than 70 when you really think about it, because within the blue and white party, which is officially, I guess they're calling it center left, it's still mostly espousing center right policies. Here and there, they'll say something that sounds like the, an old labor party line of years ago. But for the most part, the blue and white party would not come anywhere near uh, Likud in the final voting tallies if there was an impression that this was mostly a left wing left wing party or a rehashing of the old labor coalition, that kind of thing. But the problem is, is that they're having a hard time agreeing. They're having personal issues, whether it's personal problems that that other right wing members and certainly center right folks have with Prime Minister Netanyahu or Avigdor Lieberman's personal issues. He seems to really want a couple of issues push forward within the Knesset and within the Israeli community, uh, the political community. And if he doesn't get it, he's willing to continue to keep the the election, the, the, the political, the government in limbo. He's willing to do that. That's very clear. So what happened, I think that really the two things that really caught my eye during this weekend of, of memorial services and events for Yitzhak Rabin were a couple of things. First of all, you had the grandson of Yitzhak Rabin giving a speech where he blames, I mean, there's, a, there's so many things wrong with this, I have to take a pause. He, he, he uses a speech that's supposed to be a memorial for his assassinated grandfather and uses that speech not only to attack Prime Minister Netanyahu, and it's, I'm sorry, it's not appropriate to do that, but he uses it to say that Netanyahu is, quote, responsible for the collapse of Israel. Um, excuse me, Israel collapsed? Where did it collapse? Now, I know the political situation is in limbo, and I know that we've got plenty of problems, many of which you've heard me talk about here on the Novak Now program on the Nachum Siegel Network. I've talked about many of them. But Israel has collapsed? How has it collapsed? It's economically much better off than it was, than it's ever been. There is intermittent security issues, issues within Israel. I don't think, I wouldn't say that Israel is the most secure it's ever been in its history, but it's on that, it's closer to the, to more, to the most secure it's ever been to the least secure it's ever been. The military is certainly still supreme in the Middle East. They are dealing with rocket attacks and intermittent terrorism, but the terrorism that Israel is suffering through now is nothing compared to what it was suffering through in the early 2000s. And it's of, course, of course, Israel's existential life is not threatened by conventional Arab armies like it was for the first 20 years or so of the, of the nation's existence. Israel, you know, just look, we, we can go through all these things, laundry list item by laundry list item, but to say that Israel has collapsed and whoever you want to blame for it, it's outrageous. It's just an outrageous statement to make. Now, if this were five, 25 minutes or 25 days after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, I think we might want to forgive or have some understanding for his grandson for saying something like this. But it's been 25 years, not 25 minutes or 25 days or even 25 weeks. It's been 25 years, 24 years to be exact. I'm sorry, 24 years. And it's outrageous to say that Israel has collapsed. It's outrageous to make this into a partisan speech to blast Netanyahu. And of course, this 
in my opinion, stems from a couple of things. It stems from the overall nastiness. And the fact, listen, when you have close election after close election, you've had two straight elections now in Israel that were that did not create a definitive answer, and two straight coalition processes that also did not result in the creation of a coalition government. But when you have close elections after close election, the 2015 election was also close. When you have close elections, you end up with a really nasty political taste. Everyone's got a, a lot of people have a nasty political taste in their mouth in a country. And I understand that. I don't still don't think it's appropriate for, for him to have said what he said. But I, 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 I let's be honest. We know where this is coming from. This is coming from that. And that's that's really the main source of this inappropriate behavior and comment by by the grandson of Yitzhak Rabin. But it also comes from something else, which which began the day that Netanyahu was first elected prime minister for his first run as prime minister, remember he was prime minister from 1996 to 1999. And in that election, the center left in Israel decided to try to smear Netanyahu with the, with, with the outrageous notion that right-wingers in Israel somehow encouraged the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, and then they got what they wanted after that assassination, not only from the elimination of Rabin, but also from the election of Netanyahu. And they use the biblical term from the story uh, of Elijah and King Ahab. I'm saying this in English. If, for those of you who know these names a little better in Hebrew, Eliyahu and King Ahav, where he basically says to King Ahav, after he kills someone who's, uh, whose vineyard he wanted, you murdered and you also inherited. In Hebrew, we say, and that was a term that they used to smear Netanyahu as if he had something to do with the assassination of Rabin, which he did not. He did not incite his, 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 his assassination. He absolutely denigrated and sounded alarm bells over his, his policies towards the Palestinians and said there would be tremendous uh, loss of life because of them. And I think he did truly believe that. Did he use a little political hyperbole there? Yes. I'm not going to give Netanyahu a complete clean bill of health on that one or a complete pass on that one. I'm not saying that he did not raise a hyperbole level to something that he should not have done, because I think that it is what he did. But to blame him for the assassination of, Netanyahu, of Yitzhak Rabin because of that, or to say that he fomented that kind of you know, homicidal anger, is just, it's just not fair. It's, 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 also, it's just incredibly dangerous. And you can see from the comments of Rabin's grandson, that they're still clinging to that as well. They're still clinging to this he murdered and he inherited narrative, which is highly offensive, highly divisive for the country. I mean, listen, the country can come together and say, hey, we should all tone it down. And we should all think of what we're going to do when we see future Yigal Amir types in our midst. When we see someone who does not seem to be all, you know, all that right, what we can do in a way that isn't disrespectful, isn't nasty to try to get that person help or at least to to alert people to what the situation is and we can find out exactly how to act on that now this is a problem again that both the united states and israel are dealing with they have been dealing with for a long time how many times now have we heard here in the united states after a mass shooting that the mass shooter was known to so many people in his general circle of life as someone who was really deeply troubled this is becoming no longer a joke because it's gone beyond just people who kind of knew that the future mass shooter could be a problem. Some of these people have been reported. The mass shooter at the high school in, in Florida a couple of years ago, this terrible mass shooting, was known to everyone in the neighborhood and in the community and the police at the school as a dangerous kid. And they didn't do enough to, to stop this. 
because it does seem that because of lawsuits or being accused of being a nasty person or a tattletale, I mean, I don't know what the, you know, this, there's so many reasons for this. So this is something that I think could be really helpful for our societies in both the United States and Israel for us to talk about how we can, yes, we should tone down our rhetoric. But more importantly, when we see someone who's on this train wreck of a life, who seems to be violent, who is making these kinds of threats, how can we deal in a legal way that doesn't take away decent freedoms in, in our countries? How can we deal with somebody like this? How can we let them know they can't continue like this? How can we let people know they need to protect themselves from somebody like this in a proper way? And both Israel and the United States are grappling with that. I, I assume quite a few other Western democracies are also. And we don't want to lose our democratic rights. We don't want to lose our freedoms. But we have to figure out a way to, to, to make sure without stigmatizing or making mental illness something that we make fun of. That's not good. I mean, even if mental illness, there's nothing worth making fun of or, 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 or leering at or making a joke out of. Anyway, we're not looking, about, we're not looking to, to make mental illness some kind of embarrassing stigma. But, you know, it, it's also embarrassing if somebody is running around with a gun. I mean, it's embarrassing for them. Obviously, that's not the first word that comes to our mind when we see somebody doing something like that. We think, oh, my God, it's dangerous. But we don't care so much about embarrassing them to stop them from doing that. So we need to start thinking about how, to, how we do that. But what is not helpful is what we've seen in Israel really going through different currents over the last 24 years and ups and downs, but it keeps recurring. It keeps coming back. And it came back again this weekend. This notion that Netanyahu and the overall right in Israel, which again is most of the country, <laughs> is somehow responsible for the assassination of Rabin, whereas really you're dealing with one individual who was the, who, who was responsible for it. The people who may have directly incited him, there may have been someone who directly incited him, but it was not Benjamin Netanyahu, and it was not the Likud party, and it wasn't some of the other right-wing parties. And really what's much more helpful is for us to figure out how we can find these identify these people more, more readily, which I think we're getting really good at doing that, but then what do we do about it? Do we throw them in? You know, we can't just throw them in jail preemptively before they do something. So what can we do to, to make our, our, our communities and our countries and our political system a little bit more safe in both Israel and the United States from people like this without throwing away you know, the Bill of Rights? We have to figure out how to do that. And I don't have all the answers for that. I do know, though, that we have to have a more proactive conversation with local authorities about how we deal with folks like this and whether there's a way for us to do that. And of course, listen, there are, there are some people who say that, and I think they're on the right track. I don't think this is the complete answer, but there are a lot of people who say like, look, we, we, we've gone through a period in this country starting about 45 years ago where they started to close public mental health institutions left and right. And that is when also the homeless situation started to spike in this country. And you know, a lot of people draw, draw a direct line. I don't think it's a complete direct line, but I think it has a lot to do with it. And we may have to start thinking about doing that. We may have to ask ourselves, how much money are we spending in some of our major cities dealing with the overtly mentally ill and the, and the massive amount of homeless people in certain cities in the United States? Figure out how much money that's costing us and seeing if, whether, seeing if opening, reopening mental health facilities might actually be cheaper or the same price. Uh, and we need to start thinking about that. So, but what we have in Israel now is just an, an ugly situation. And, you know, this reminds me of something else that ties Israel and the United States together, in this case, more specifically, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump together. You know, they can be nasty sometimes, and they can be tough guys. I mean, certainly President Trump more than, uh, than Benjamin Netanyahu with 
the nastiness and the name calling and, and the overt stuff like that. Just, uh, President Trump is certainly more guilty of that than Prime Minister Netanyahu. But the funny thing that I've noticed with both of them is that no matter how low these guys go, their opponents, much to their benefit, their opponents seem to get even worse. When I say much to their benefit, I mean, I mean to the benefit of President Trump. I mean to the benefit of Benjamin Netanyahu. No matter how nasty they get, it seems that their opponents decide it's okay to get even nastier or to throw out the rules even more. And that's what's going on in Israel right now. When you have a grandson of Yitzhak Rabin saying that Israel has collapsed, which is just laughable on its face. It has not collapsed. No one, no one in their right mind would say that. And then also saying that it's Netanyahu's fault. And then, of course, you had Benny Gantz, who's the leader of the Blue and White Party, who also very much politicized his address to the nation at the Yitzhak Rabin Memorial over the weekend, also made it very much about blaming Netanyahu for issues in the country. And it's just not appropriate. And I don't think that there's a lot of people in the Israeli political establishment who understand why that's not, not appropriate outside of Likud folks who don't want to get criticized. I mean, can I honestly say that if the Likud, if it had been a Likud prime minister had been assassinated, that they wouldn't give a similar speech 24 years later? I, I, you know, probably they would. There's something about the political class in both the United, again, I'm, I'm tying the countries together a lot to, uh, you know, in this edition of Novak Now and the Nachum Siegel Network, I realize that. But there's something about the political establishments in both Israel and the United States that don't seem to understand what is appropriate and what isn't. They don't care. It's just not appropriate to politicize so much. But again, their entire lives are politics. And I, and you know, you, listen, you, you've heard me talk about politics quite a bit on this program. I promise you, politics is not my life. It's not the beginning, ending, or the middle of my life. It's a, it's a big part of what I'm interested in. But if it were really my life, I'd, I'd be running for office. I'd be somebody's big staffer. I'd be a campaign. I don't want that life. I'm not, politics is not my life. And, and, and thank goodness for that. But for these people, it is their life. It's their life. It's their religion. It's their life's blood. And you can see that because they can never separate. They can never separate politics from anything they do, which, and I think it includes their personal relationships. How many people in politics have wives and, and spouses and things like that, that, that are basically a campaign prop <laughs> and the Clintons come to mind, but I don't think that they're that unique. I think there's a lot of that going on. So anyway, that's, that's the situation in Israel and that's, that's unfortunate. And of course, this comes at the same time here in the United States where the, the efforts to link white nationalism and the crimes of white nationalists to anything that has to do with President Trump or his supporters have been going on in overdrive since before he was even president. I don't have to go into every one of these examples. Of course, the most egregious example of that has been that string that continues to happen, string of hate crimes, supposed hate crimes that turned out to be phony hate crimes. And by that, I mean, they weren't phony and that they didn't hurt, hurt people or they didn't frighten people, but they were done by members of minority communities in order to smear Trump supporters or President Trump. And of course, that was really the worst iteration of that. I mean, think of the, think of the, the mental instability and the hatred going through the mind and hearts of people who put together, I mean, the, the dozens and dozens of hoax hate crimes that we've seen since President Trump was elected, just nasty stuff. But the other problem with that is we've had, forget about the folks making the hoax hate crimes, you've had people in, in the political establishment in the Democratic Party, and some in the Republican Party, that, that small handful, that 5% of never-Trumper Republicans, and of course the news media, who have decided to elevate the, the, the number of white nationalists in this country. And I say they elevate them because they now believe, this, they, they now continue to repeat this narrative that this is a major threat to the country. 
And I think what they've done is two really, really bad things by doing that. First off, of course, they've, they've, they've attempted to smear anyone who supports President Trump as a white nationalist. But worse, they've given this small, incredibly small fringe group in this country, which really doesn't do much, thank God, to disrupt our lives. They've given them a tremendous platform. There was one network that even put one of a, a white supremacist on the air because that white supremacist was angry at President Trump. We don't do that. Now, again, I don't say we censor their speech. As long as they're not inciting to violence, I don't think we should be censoring them. Luckily for us, a lot of times they, when they do speak, they are inciting violence, so we can censor them. So that's, that's fine. But the point is, we've given them a tremendous platform and given them this belief that they're a lot more powerful than they are, which is just what they want to hear. It's silly. And so what we've experienced in these scenarios that I've talked about, the, the, the smearing of, of Netanyahu in Israel, the smearing of Trump and his supporters in the United States, I think is not only a case of political dirty trick, but it's also what uh, a, a guy I, you've heard me mention many times here on this program, uh, author Scott Adams, who's also the cartoonist behind Dilbert, of what I, he calls loser think. And he has a new book of that same title. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll tweet a, a link to it. I got a chance to meet him in person. I've been corresponding with him online for quite some time. And I got a chance to meet him in person because he was doing the book tour this past week in New York. And Loser Think is a great book. There's a lot. It's a quick read. And it's, there's a lot of smart things that he says in it. But one of the things is it, that he talks about in the book is if you really focus on the most negative aspect of everything, especially the most negative aspect of your opponents, then you're probably the most negative aspect of your group. So if you're somebody who looks at the small, small percentage of white supremacists in the United States and really make a big deal out of that, then you might be, just might be one of the small percentages of your group that's really the worst. If you're one of the people who looks at Israel and says it's collapsed, <laughs> at all the successes that Israel's had economically and technologically, and yes, militarily and all those things, and you say that Israel's collapsed, there's something wrong with you. That's loser think. You know, yeah, you could say it's another way of saying pessimism, but pessimism beyond the, the realm of reality is a big aspect of loser things. So I don't want to give away too much of the book, but you should pick it up. It's an easy read, like I said, and it's a cheap, it's not expensive. Loser Think by Scott Adams, one word, and I highly recommend it. Um, it it's just one of those things that, that is starting to really disturb me, that we have decided to make this worst small fringe element in the United States. That, you know, I, I, are there white supremacists? Of course there are. They just arrested one in Colorado. He was apparently planning to try to bomb a, a synagogue in Pueblo, Colorado. Yes, there is a synagogue in Pueblo, Colorado, for those of you who are wondering. Uh, we should go after these guys. I'm not trying to belittle anything that they, that they threaten to do or the fact that they exist. But are they a major threat to this country? Is there a significant number of them? No. No and no. It doesn't mean we ignore them, but it also means we don't go to bed every night worried about white supremacists coming to get us. All right. And unfortunately for people who cannot stop politicizing everything, this is a major, major, this is a major narrative in both this country and the way that we focus it on white nationalism and in also in Israel in the way that they try to smear Netanyahu and his supporters for an assassination that took 24 that, that took place 24 years ago. It's ludicrous on its face. And more importantly, that's a greater danger. That is a greater danger. The the smearing of half the country and, and the attempts to associate them with white nationalism here in the United States is much more dangerous than white nationalism itself. It's outrageous and it's dangerous. And it needs to stop. Find another way to win your election. 
And I think that the problem in both Israel and the United States is that the center left and the left don't, do not believe that they can win an election on policy alone. Now, you've also heard me say here on, on the Novak Now program on the Nachman Siegel Network that policy has never really been the reason why anyone's won an election, at least not in the United States, maybe in a parliamentary election. But in the United States, it's really about personalities and personal persuasion. But the thing is, if you're a really persuasive person and you're strong at it, you can make your policies persuasive and a part of your persuasive package that you believe that you present to the public. You know, one of the great one of the great things that, that Albert Einstein said, which is something that is, I don't want to say it's haunted me, but it's something that's challenged me my entire adult life ever since the time I first read it, before I was an adult. I was a teenager when I first read this. But I'm paraphrasing. Basically, Albert Einstein said, you know, you really don't understand something unless you can explain it in simple terms, which is a heck of a thing for somebody like Albert Einstein to say, because explaining the theory of relativity is pretty hard to do in simple terms. I, I suppose he felt he was able to do that in some ways. Some aspects of that theory, he definitely have, has been able, he was able in his lifetime to explain a little bit more easily. But it's one of those things that has always challenged me. And I think that if you can argue certain policies in a persuasive way, in a way that it does not misrepresent your policy, <laughs> you know, you can misrepresent something and, and explain it easily. But if you can explain something and say, here's why I think this works more, uh, and you do it in a persuasive way, I, I think that that's really a, a great way to win elections. You know, I, it, it may not be the reason why most people vote for you. It may not be the most persuasive thing about you. But we've got to get to that point, and we're not there. We're not there for a lot in, in a lot of ways. I think most people who vote, for example, to, for President Trump like the no-nonsense attitude he has, but may not be so up on the individual policies. They may like the policies when they see them, but that will not honestly be the, the real reason why they glommed on to him in the first place, and vice versa. I think that there's people who will say, will say they don't like his policies, but really it's his personality that turned them off. And we've reached that point where we have a Democratic Party and all the candidates there, hardly any of them are really running on a policy. I think the only one who's really sort of trying to do that is Elizabeth Warren, who's running on a wealth tax policy. She's running on a Medicare for all type policy. She's misrepresented them a couple of times and not been very honest about them, specifically with the Medicare for all policy, where she continues to say there will be no taxes on the middle class to pay for it. And I wrote a column for CNBC a few months ago saying that was a big miss for her because for the Democratic primary voters, that strong group of regressive, I remember, I don't say the word progressive because when you're going, when you're, when you're advocating old school socialist policies that sound like communist policies from the, you know, from the 19th and early 20th century, that's regressive, not progressive. Okay. So I call them regressive, but I understand some people for, for clarity's sake call the, the further left of the Democratic Party, the progressive wing. So, so be it. But I understand that she wants to try to get the, the, those people, folks behind her. And I think that she would actually get more support if she said, hell yeah. Hell yeah, we're going to raise taxes a, a lot on the rich, a little bit on the middle class, but it's going to be a net win for the middle class because think about what you pay every month for your health insurance and for your coverage at work and what comes out of your paycheck. I think she should have had a really stronger answer to that instead of now, which I think she's just out and out lying, and before when she was hemming and hawing. So she went from hemming and hawing about not saying whether or not whether the middle class would be taxed or not to now just lying about it, which is too bad because I think just from a campaign point of view, I'm, I'm not supporting any candidate openly. 
I don't do that. And uh, anyway, but even if I were, I I, I would say it, it's just it's you know I I like to look at these campaigns as as from a from a strategic point of view. And if I were her campaign manager, I would have said, heck yeah, go, go out there and say heck yeah, we're going to raise a little bit of the middle class so that you guys can make a lot more money back with. Medicare for all, but she didn't do that. And that's one of the reasons why I think she's not as persuasive as she could have been. But sadly, most of what we're dealing with in America is, is unfair smears. And that's what we're dealing with in Israel as well. And I hope that stops sometime soon. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.